The Shabbos is indeed a momentous confluence, a momentous coming together of of various pieces. Indeed, a great meeting takes place this Shabbat around the world in synagogues. People are gathered to honor this great meeting. It isn't found, though, on your iPads or on your iPhones. It isn't scheduled on your DVR. It's not available on pay-per-view. And certainly the New York Times will not be covering this. No scalpers will be selling tickets. It isn't overtly related to the Mayan calendar, although, of course, if you ask someone who believes in it, it probably is. Judah and Joseph, this Shabbat, are meeting. Judah and Joseph, this Shabbos, are confronting one another. Judah has passed the test that has been so elaborately contrived by Joseph, his brother. 22 years earlier, you'll recall, it was Judah who proposed selling Joseph into slavery. And now Joseph, still unrecognized by his brothers, has put him through a carefully constructed ordeal to see whether he's still the same person. Or maybe he's changed. He has changed. Judah has changed irrevocably. He once believed in action, passivity, could save his family. He was wrong then. Now he knows he must take action. The parsha begins with Kadmavi Azla, Vayigash Elav Yehuda. Judah got up and he confronted his brother Joseph, not knowing he was Joseph, with everything to lose. Judah knows that words must persuade. They must open and save the potential loss of his brother Benjamin. Judah knows he has failed once before, and he can't afford to let it happen a second time. Judah is now willing to become a slave himself so that his brother Benjamin can go free. And that is all Joseph needs to hear. Now at last... He reveals his identity in a moving moment of tears, of crying, of kissing, of reconciliation. He finally comes clean and reveals himself. Judah, in our tradition, is the original Baal Tshuva, the original penitent, the first real transformed man of the Bible. He's in the sense of amazing grace, you know. I once was lost. And now I'm found. Judah was lost. Judah had failed in chapter 37 when the brothers were scheming to, to kill Joseph. Judah had morally and ethically failed his brother. Instead of directly speaking to them and saving Joseph, he came up with an inactive, passive way of dealing with it. Let's sell him, said Judah back in chapter 37. And in chapter 38, many of you will recall the episode with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Judah had lost his two sons and refused to allow his third son to be married to Tamar and thought that maybe if I don't do anything, it'll be okay. Anybody ever have that? If I don't do something, maybe it'll all get better, right? Inaction and passivity in the face of a moral obligation is sinful. And Judah learns it doesn't lead to the construction of the family, but to the opposite, the dissolution and the destruction of the family. 
So today, Judah is a new man. He has already taken a number of very bold actions. He stepped up. And now he's finally ready to take matters into his own hands, his newly empowered hands. He's a leader who isn't afraid to make difficult decisions that may be injurious to his own narrow self-interests. Judah models the power to do things differently, to revisit scenarios that once triggered us to cowardice and reframe them, restructure them. Those old narratives become fresh new ones. Judah represents for each and every one of you and for me redemption and progress. For this reason, we're told in the Talmud that Judah's lineage will give birth to kings, including the other most famous, Baal Tshuva, King David himself. And ultimately, the Messiah will come from Judah's restructuring of old narratives. And what about Joseph? Joseph is the epitome of complete forgiveness. He has forgiven his brothers for what the brothers had done to him all those years before. He says to them, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. God has sent me forward to give you life. Don't worry, says Joseph. You had all of your scenarios, a mensch tracht, and God laughed. You all schemed, and God had his way. Joseph comforts the brothers in their angst, in their guilt, in their sense of heavy burden. How could we have done this? Joseph, he makes no reference to the plot to kill him. He doesn't bring it back up. He doesn't make mention of the lost years, those 22 years of his life. What might have been if only you hadn't sent me, if only you hadn't schemed against me, if you only had not been envious of me. No. Not only does he forgive them, he does everything possible to relieve them of any sense of guilt. And that's an interesting one for us Jews. He tells them they're not responsible. Joseph, who had earlier in his life thought that he could manipulate all kinds of scenarios. Joseph, who had complained, I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in this prison, who tries every which way to scheme and to create all kinds of manner of narrative, direction. Joseph is changed. Upon being confronted by his brother Judah, Joseph's a new man. Now Joseph can say, It's okay. There are plans that are bigger than your plans, Judah. There were plans that were bigger than your plans, brothers. I'm a new man, Joseph says. Even though I am the viceroy of Egypt and I can do anything I want, there are bigger things than even me. I was sent forward for life. I was sent forward for life. There was a purpose. There was a meaning behind all of those 22 years of anguish, of frustration, Joseph heals the brothers with a big vision. And so human initiative and responsibility meet destiny today. Unforeseeable events, mysterious causes, and a belief in something larger and more profound meets Judah, the man of the hour, the man of progress, the man who takes responsibility. Vaigash elav 
Judah says we must step in to the, pierce the inchoate darkness that would have us be obedient and dutiful children of all manner of causes. No, screams Judah. I will step forward. I will speak persuasively. I will not be a victim any longer. I must act, says Judah. So which one of these perspectives prevails? Is it the perspective of Joseph, everything is perfect? Or the perspective of Judah? No, I have to make a difference. The text is clear tonight. Vaigash elav Yehuda. Judah confronts Joseph. Judah confronts destiny and fatalism. Judah takes the first step forward and says, before we can ever arrive at saying it was a bigger picture, we have to take responsibility. Before we can speak of grand visions, of narratives so large no human eye has ever seen them, Judah says, Vaigash elav, I have to come forward. The Midrash says that Joseph questioned him as the viceroy, not yet Joseph, says to him, well, you, Judah, you're the fourth son. How is it that you have a voice here today? Are there no brothers older than you, says the Midrash? And here, what, this is what Judah says. In spite of the fact that there are brothers older than me and they stand outside of relationship, I, they stand outside relationship, they are aloof, while I feel my bowels cramping, twisting like a rope. Aviva Zornberg comments on that. That when Judah made himself responsible for his brother uh, Benjamin, this guarantor became a gateway inside of personhood. He summons resources of anger, irony, and menace in protection of that which he is identified with. For the guarantor, the barriers of personhood are down. He becomes real as the rope of pain and involvement twists in his bowels. Judah's got his kishkas going. Judah cares. Judah's got a rope twisting in his gut because he is responsible for Benjamin. Judah, the one who before didn't care about Joseph, he feels it now. Why am I speaking to you even though I'm the fourth son? What gives me the right to speak, says Judah to Joseph? Because my kishkas are wound together with my brother. I am tied like a rope is tied. I rave. I am mixed together with him. The Bible wants us to know we are responsible, at least partially and in conjunction with forces beyond our control. We may say we can't understand God's will, but we must take responsibility and act with a sense of moral agency. And ethical integrity. We can change destiny, says the Bible. That's why with all the talk about the Mayan calendar, the auspicious event, and the years that have been leading up to it, I've always been a bit cautious. As someone who has studied various systems of mysticism and sacred energies like astrology, I'm, of course, intrigued by all of this, by the deeper patterns that seem to circulate, the larger movements of systems struggle, and make meaning of things that we don't always understand. In this, I'm very much a Joseph kind of guy. I've learned that big things are happening, bigger than me. In my own life, so often I have come up against that realization, always in retrospect, that something bigger than me was shaping my life. I get the desire for some kind of eschatology, somehow an epoch. I get that, that desire for an end. 
but I'm also acutely aware of the Judah state of mind. My own responsibility to make my own calendar. Make my own fate. To never ever empower anything and anyone other than our radical refusal to settle, our unwillingness to give in to cynicism and fear, our struggle to liberate ourselves from what was so, may, so we may herald what might be. As children of Joseph, we must be able to say when looking back, Ki shlachani, I was sent for life. But as children of Judah, we are not permitted to rely on faith. As children of Judah, and all of us are children of Judah, the word Jew comes from Judean or Yehudi to be of Judah. We must, each of us, approach Vayigash, destiny, Joseph. We must lead. We must act. We must be courageous against all doubts. In truth, everybody, Judah probably saved Joseph's life. Who knows what would have happened had Judah not broken through to Joseph, had he not softened his heart and brought him to tears. Judah brings Joseph to full-blown exposure. He is revealed, he is raw, he is naked. It's only been a week. Each and every one of us here has cried tears of Joseph. Tears for innocence that was lost forever. Tears for what might have been. And so no, none of us here has the right to speak Joseph's words, I was sent for a purpose. It is far too soon, and the pain is still too raw for us to begin formulating large plans and, and submitting them as to what the purpose of last Friday's events might mean. Our response must be like Judah's to confront destiny with our acts of courage. We too might honor Judah's father, Jacob, when he heard Joseph had died, who refused to be comforted. The time has come for all of us to refuse also to be comforted. We can't go back to business as usual. Many of you know that on Sunday, in the Jewish calendar, we will commemorate Asara B'Tevet, the 10th day of the month of Tevet which is a fast day. It's called a light fast day, which means you fast from dawn to dusk, dawn to sundown. And that day is a day that commemorates the king Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem over two millennia ago. How many of you have been thinking about that? I know, it's on your calendar. It's up there with the Mayan calendar. Shlomo Karbach used to say famously an anecdote that Napoleon purportedly came across a synagogue during his conquests and it happened to be the ninth day of the month of Av, the saddest day of the Jewish calendar, the day on which we mourn for the destruction of the two temples that stood in Jerusalem. And purportedly, Napoleon asked, why are they sitting on the floor with sack and ashes? Why are they chanting that mournful tune of Eicha, Lamentations? And one of his advisors said, well, they're they're mourning the destruction of their temple. Napoleon said, oh, was it recently destroyed? And the advisor said, no, not exactly. 
Well, when was it destroyed? Oh, about 2,000 years ago. Napoleon said this, a people that can cry for a temple for 2,000 years after its destruction will one day see its rebuilding. A people that can cry 2,000 years after we lost the temple will see, we'll see Joseph. A people that can cry and continue to refuse to be comforted will see redemption. We must be a society that refuses to be comforted by Christmas carols, thank God for them, and by shopping. We can't go back to business as usual. This must be our wake-up call. We cannot go back to sleep. Whether it's the Mayan calendar or it's our own inner Yehuda saying, Vayigash, we have to confront, we must stand up, we must speak words that are persuasive, that cajole, that inspire, that change. We must all of us believe that Joseph is still alive and he is well. In each of the 48,000 human beings whose lives might be lost this coming year unless we take responsibility, unless we are willing to put ourselves on the line by speaking truth to power as Judah did, unless we are willing to step up and to feel the twisting rope of involvement and love in our kishkas, we'll be right back here year after year, unable to prevent Joseph's tears. In the interim, we will lift each other up. Today and tomorrow and next week and next month, perhaps one day we will meet Noah Posner. And he too, like Joseph before, whom Jacob had thought was lost, might one day say to us, don't feel guilty. Please be released from that thought. I was sent to give life. To show the way to a more loving world for all of you who are left. Until that day that Joseph arrives again, each of us, like the great Hasidic rabbi, Rabbi Itzla Vorka, must refuse to abandon the tears. Rabbi Mendel Vorka was a great Hasidic Rebbe who was known for his love. His best friend was Menachem Mendel of Kotsk. And they made a deal that when the Vorka, or Itzla Vorka, would die, that he would come back and give a message to Rav Mendel of Kotsk. And when he passed away, the Kotsker received no transmission, no message from beyond. And so after waiting for a while, the Kotsker decided to take the law into his own hands and he ascended to heaven. And as he ascended, he went from one domain to another, one realm to another, one chamber to another, looking for his friend, Rav Itzla Vorka. And everyone kept pointing them, saying, go that way. That's where Rav Itzla is. Go that way. And Rav Mendela was rushing. He had to find out what happened to his friend. He even went into the chamber of the Messiah, who said, no, he's not here, but you can find him across that forest. And pointing to a forest, the Kotzka Rebbe entered the forest. And he heard a great noise, a crashing. 
And as he came closer and closer to the edge of the forest, he saw a vast ocean. And out on a rock, he saw his friend, Itzlavorka, sitting with his shtick, his shtekel, his stick. And he walked over to him and said, Itzla, where have you been? We've been looking for you. And Rabitzla said, I've been here the whole time. Rabitzla said, what is this? This ocean is crashing. What is this place? And the Vorker took his stick and he pointed it out over the ocean. He said, this is an ocean of tears. And although I was entered into heaven first class, I promised that I would stay on this rock until these tears were dry. And I will not move until these tears are dry. I will not move until these tears are dry. I propose that December 14th, if you'll join me, every year I will fast in honor of the children of Newtown. From dawn to dusk, their memory will blaze. And I will not leave this rock until their tears are dry. We can't. They deserve so much more. So as we move forward, and we inevitably will, Judah is showing us the way. He's saying, get up. There's work to do. There are people's ears that we must bend. There are actions we must take. Too much is at stake. And the rope is twisting. May we be strengthened to be children of Judah, to find voice and power to change this world into a world free of suffering and violence. And may the coming age, whatever it may be, be filled with a love for all of this earth, all of our family. Amen.